Martin Chuzzlewit, Chapter Twenty Nine. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Brad Philippone. Martin Chuzzlewit by Charles Dickens, Chapter Twenty Nine, in which some people are precocious, others professional, and others mysterious, all in their several ways. It may have been the restless remembrance of what he had seen and heard overnight or it may have been no deeper mental operation than the discovery that he had nothing to do, which caused Mr. Bailey, on the following afternoon, to feel particularly disposed for agreeable society, and prompted him to pay a visit to his friend Pole Sweedlepipe. On the little bell giving clamorous notice of a visitor's approach, for Mr. Bailey came in at the door with a lunge to get as much sound out of the bell as possible, Pole Sweedlepipe desisted from the contemplation of a favourite owl, and gave his young friend hearty welcome. "'Why, you look smarter by day,' said Paul, "'than you do by candlelight. I never see such a tight young dasher.' "'Rather so, Polly. How's our fair friend Sarah?' "'Oh, she's pretty well,' said Paul. "'She's at home.' "'There's the remains of a fine woman about Sarah, Paul.' observed Mr. Bailey with genteel indifference. "'Oh,' thought Pole, "'he's old. He must be very old.' "'Too much crumb, you know,' said Mr. Bailey. "'Too fat, Pole. But there's many a worse at her time of life.' "'The very owls are open in his eyes,' thought Paul. "'I don't wonder at it in a bird of his opinions.' He happened to have been sharpening his razors, which were lying open in a row, while a huge strop dangled from the wall. Glancing at these preparations, Mr. Bailey stroked his chin, and a thought appeared to occur to him. "'Pole,' he said, "'I ain't as neat as I could wish about the gills. Being here, I may as well have a shave and get trimmed close.' The barber stood aghast, but Mr. Bailey divested himself of his neckcloth, and sat down in the easy shaving-chair with all the dignity and confidence in life. There was no resisting his manner. The evidence of sight and touch became as nothing. His chin was as smooth as a new-laid egg or a scraped Dutch cheese, but Paul Sweetlepipe wouldn't have ventured to deny, on affidavit, that he had the beard of a Jewish rabbi. "'Go with the grain, Paul. All round, please,' said Mr. Bailey, screwing up his face for the reception of the lather. "'You may do what you like with the bits of whisker. I don't care for him.' The meek little barber stood gazing at him with the brush and soap-dish in his hand, stirring them round and round in a ludicrous uncertainty, as if he were disabled by some fascination from beginning. At last he made a dash at Mr. Bailey's cheek. Then he stopped again, as if the ghost of a beard had suddenly receded from his touch, but receiving mild encouragement from Mr. Bailey in the form of an adjuration to go in and win, he lathered him bountifully. Mr. Bailey smiled through the suds in his satisfaction. "'Gently over the stones, Paul. Go at tip-top over the pimples.' Paul Sweedlepipe obeyed, and scraped the lather off again with particular care. Mr. Bailey squinted at every successive dab as it was deposited on a cloth on his left shoulder, and seemed with a microscopic eye to detect some bristles in it, for he murmured more than once, "'Rather redder than I could wish, Paul,' The operation being concluded, Paul fell back and stared at him again, while Mr. Bailey, wiping his face on the jack-towel, remarked, 
that arter late hours nothing freshened up a man so much as an easy shave he was in the act of tying his cravat at the glass without his coat and pole had wiped his razor ready for the next customer when mrs gamp coming downstairs looked in at the shop door to give the barber neighbourly good day feeling for her unfortunate situation and having conceived a regard for himself which it was not in the nature of things that he could return mr bailey hastened to soothe her with words of kindness hello he said sarah i needn't ask you have you been this long time for you're in full bloom all a-blowin and a-growin ain't she polly why drat the bragian boldness of that boy cried mrs gamp though not displeased what an imperent young sparrow it is i wouldn't be that creature's mother not for fifty pound mr bailey regarded this as a delicate confession of her attachment and a hint that no pecuniary gain could recompense her for its being rendered hopeless he felt flattered disinterested affection is always flattering ah dear moaned mrs gamp sinking into the shaving-chair that there blessed bull mr sweedlepipe has done his wery best to conquer me of all the trying and wallages in this wally of the shadder that one beats em black and blue it was the practice of mrs gamp and her friends in the profession to say this of all the easy customers as having at once the effect of discouraging competitors for office and accounting for the necessity of high living on the part of the nurses talk of constitution mrs gamp observed a person's constitution need be made of bricks to stand it mrs harris jestly says to me but t'other day oh sairy gamp she says how is it done mrs harris ma'am i says to her we gives no trust ourselves and puts a deal of trust elsewhere these is our religious feelings and we finds em answer sairy says mrs harris such is life which likewise is the hand of all things the barber gave a soft murmur as much as to say that mrs harris's remark though perhaps not quite so intelligible as could be desired from such an authority did equal honour to her head and to her heart and here continued mrs gamp and here am i a-goin twenty mile in distance on as wintersome a chance as ever any one as monthly'd ever run i do believe says mrs harris with a woman's and a mother's art of beatin in her human breast she says to me you're not to go in sairy lord forgive you why am i not to go in mrs harris i replies mrs gill i says was never wrong with six and is it likely ma'am i ask you as a mother that she will begin to be unregular now often and often have i heard him say i says to mrs harris meaning mrs gill that he would back his wife again moore's almanac to name the very day and hour for ninepence farden is it likely ma'am i says as she will fail this once says mrs harris no ma'am not in the course of nature but she says the tears are fillin in her eyes you knows much betterer than me with your experience how little puts us out a punch's show she says a chimney sweep a newfoundland dog 
or a drunken man a-comin' round the corner sharp may do it. So it may, Mr. Sweedlepipes, said Mrs. Gamp. There's no denying of it. And though my books is clear for a full week, I takes a anxious art along with me, I do assure you, sir. You're so full of zeal, you see, said Paul. You were it yourself so. Were it myself, cried Mrs. Gamp, raising her hands and turning up her eyes. You speak truth in that, sir, if you never speaks no more, twixt this and when two Sundays jines together. I feels the sufferin' of other people's more than I feels my own, though no one may suppose it. The families I've had, said Mrs. Gamp, if all was knowed and credit done where credit's due, would take a week to christen at St. Polge's Fountain. "'Where's the patient goin?' asked Sweedlepipe. "'Into Hertfordshire, which is his native air. "'But native airs nor native graces neither,' Mrs. Gap observed, "'won't bring him round.' "'So bad as that?' inquired the wistful barber. "'Indeed.' Mrs. Gap shook her head mysteriously and pursed up her lips. "'There's fevers of the mind,' she said, "'as well as body.' You may take your slime draughts till you flies into the air with everwessence, but you won't cure that. Ah, said the barber, opening his eyes and putting on his raven aspect, law. No, you may make yourself as light as any gash balloon, said Mrs. Gamp, but talk when you're wrong in your head and when you're in your sleep of certain things, and you'll be heavy in your mind. "'Of what kind of things, now?' inquired Paul, greedily biting his nails in his great interests. "'Ghosts?' Mrs. Gap, who perhaps had been already tempted further than she had intended to go by the barber's stimulating curiosity, gave a sniff of uncommon significance, and said it didn't signify. "'I'm a-going down with my patient in the coach this afternoon,' she proceeded. I'm a-going to stop with him a day or so, till he gets a country nurse. Drat them country nurses, much the orchid hussies knows about their business. And then I'm coming back, and that's my trouble, Mr. Sweedlepipes. But I hope that everything'll only go on right and comfortable as long as I'm away, perwisin' which, as Mrs. Harris says, Mrs. Gill is welcome to choose her own time all times of the day and night being equally the same to me during the progress of the foregoing remarks which mrs gamp had addressed exclusively to the barber mr bailey had been tying his cravat getting on his coat and making hideous faces at himself in the glass being now personally addressed by mrs gamp he turned round and mingled in the conversation "'You ain't been in the city, I suppose, sir, since we was all three there together,' said Mrs. Gamp, "'at Mr. Chuzzlewit's.' Oh, "'Yes, I have, Sarry. I was there last night.' "'Last night?' cried the barber. "'Yes, Paul, rather so. You can call it this morning, if you like to be particular. He dined with us.' "'Who does that young lamb mean by hus?' said Mrs. Gamp, with most impatient emphasis. "'Me and my governor, Sarry. He dined at our house. 
We was very merry, Sarry, so much so that I was obliged to see him home in a hackney-coach at three o'clock in the morning. It was on the tip of the boy's tongue to relate what had followed, but remembering how easily it might be carried to his master's ear, and the repeated cautions he had had from Mr. Crimple not to chatter, he checked himself, adding only, she was sitting up, expecting him. "'And all things considered,' said Mrs. Gamp sharply, "'she might have known better than to go a tyrant herself out, by doing anything of the sort. Did they seem pretty pleasant together, sir?' "'Oh, yes,' answered Bailey, "'pleasant enough.' "'I'm glad on it,' said Mrs. Scamp, with a second sniff of significance. "'They haven't been married so long,' observed Paul, rubbing his hands, "'that they need be anything but pleasant yet a while.' "'No,' said Mrs. Scamp, with a third significant signal. "'Especially,' pursued the barber, "'when the gentleman bears such a character as you gave him.' "'I speak as I find, Mr. Sweedlepipes,' said Mrs. Scamp. "'Forbid it should be other ways. "'But we never know what's hidden in each other's hearts, "'and if we had glass windows there, "'we need keep the shutters up some on us, I do assure you.' "'But you don't mean to say,' Paul Sweetlepipe began. "'No,' said Mrs. Gamp, cutting him very short. "'I don't. Don't think I do. "'The tortoise of the imposition shouldn't make me own I did.' "'All I says is,' added the good woman, rising and folding her shawl about her, "'that the bull's a-waitin', and the precious moments is a-flyin' fast.' The little barber, having in his eager curiosity a great desire to see Mrs. Gamp's patient, proposed to Mr. Bailey that they should accompany her to the bull, and witness the departure of the coach. That young gentleman assenting, they all went out together. Arriving at the tavern, Mrs. Gamp, who was full-dressed for the journey in her latest suit of mourning, left her friends to entertain themselves in the yard, while she ascended to the sick-room, where her fellow-labourer Mrs. Prigg was dressing the invalid. He was so wasted that it seemed as if his bones would rattle when they moved him, his cheeks were sunken, and his eyes unnaturally large. He lay back in the easy-chair like one more dead than living, and rolled his languid eyes towards the door when Mrs. Gamp appeared, as painfully as if their weight alone were burdensome to move. "'And how are we by this time?' Mrs. Gamp observed. "'We looks charming.' "'We looks a deal charminger than we are, then,' returned Mrs. Prigg, a little chafed in her temper. "'We got out of bed backwards, I think, but we're as cross as two sticks. I never see such a man. He wouldn't have been washed if he'd had his own way.' "'She put the soap in my mouth,' said the unfortunate patient feebly. "'Couldn't you keep it shut, then?' retorted Mrs. Prigg. "'Who do you think's to wash one feature and miss another, and wear one's eyes out with all manner of fine work of that description for half a crown a day? If you wants to be titivated, you must pay accordin'. "'Oh, dear me!' cried the patient. "'Oh, dear, dear!' "'There,' said Mrs. Prigg, "'that's the way he's been a-conducted of himself, Sarah, ever since I got him out of bed, if you'll believe it.' "'Instead of being grateful,' Mrs. Gamp observed, "'for all our little ways. "'Oh, for shame, sir, fie for shame!' Here Mrs. Prigg seized the patient by the chin, and began to rasp his unhappy head with a hairbrush. "'I suppose you don't like that neither,' she observed, stopping to look at him. 
It was just possible that he didn't, for the brush was a specimen of the hardest kind of instrument producible by modern art, and his very eyelids were red with the friction. Mrs. Prigg was gratified to observe the correctness of her supposition, and said triumphantly she knowed as much. When his hair was smoothed down comfortably into his eyes, Mrs. Prigg and Mrs. Gap put on his neckerchief, adjusting his shirt-collar with great nicety, so that the starched points should also invade those organs, and afflict them with an artificial ophthalmia. His waistcoat and coat were next arranged, and as every button was wrenched into a wrong buttonhole and the order of his boots was reversed, he presented on the whole a rather melancholy appearance. "'I don't think it's right,' said the poor weak invalid. "'I feel as if I was in somebody else's clothes. I'm all on one side, and you've made one of my legs shorter than the other. There's a bottle in my pocket, too. What did you make me sit upon a bottle for?' "'Deuce take the man!' cried Mrs. Gamp, drawing it forth. "'If he ain't been and got my night-bottle here.' I made a little cupboard of his coat, when it hung behind the door and quite forgot it, Betsy. You'll find an injure or two in the little tea and sugar in's t'other pocket, my dear, if you'll just be good enough to take em out." Betsy produced the property in question, together with some other articles of great chandlery, and Mrs. Gamp transferred them to her own pocket, which was a species of nankeen pannier. Refreshment then arrived in the form of chops and strong ale for the ladies and a basin of beef-tea for the patient, which reflection was barely at an end, when John Westlock appeared. "'Up and dressed!' cried John, sitting down beside him. "'That's brave. How do you feel?' "'Much better, but very weak.' "'No wonder. You've had a hard bout of it. But country air and change of scene,' said John, "'will make another man of you.' "'Why, Mrs. Gamp,' he added, laughing, as he kindly arranged the sick man's garments, "'you have odd notions of a gentleman's dress.' "'Mr. Lucem ain't an easy gent to get into his clothes, sir,' Mrs. Gamp replied with dignity, "'as me and Betsy Prigg can certify afford the Lord Mayor and uncommon counsellors, if needful.' John at that moment was standing close in front of the sick man, in the act of releasing him from the torture of the collars before mentioned, when he said in a whisper, "'Mr. Westlock, I don't wish to be overheard. I have something very particular and strange to say to you, something that has been a dreadful weight on my mind through this long illness.' Quick in all his motions, John was turning round to desire the women to leave the room, when the sick man held him by the sleeve. "'Not now. I've not the strength. I've not the courage. May I tell it when I have? May I write it, if I find that easier and better?' "'May you?' cried John. "'Why, Lucem, what is this?' "'Don't ask me what it is. It's unnatural and cruel. Frightful to think of, frightful to tell, frightful to know, frightful to have helped in. Let me kiss your hand for all your goodness to me. Be kinder still, and don't ask me what it is.' At first John gazed at him in great surprise, but remembering how very much reduced he was, and how recently his brain had been on fire with fever, believed that he was labouring under some imaginary horror of despondent fancy. For further information on this point he took an opportunity of drawing Mrs. Gamp aside while Betsy Prigg was wrapping him in cloaks and shawls, and asked her whether he was quite collected in his mind. 
"'Oh, bless you, no,' said Mrs. Gamp. "'He hates his nusses to this hour. "'They always does it, sir. "'It's a certain sign. "'If you could have heard the poor dear soul "'of finding fault with me and Betsy Prig "'not half an hour ago, "'you would have wondered how it is "'we don't get fretted to the tomb.' This almost confirmed John in his suspicion, so not taking what had passed into any serious account, he resumed his former cheerful manner, and, assisted by Mrs. Gamp and Betsy Prigg, conducted Lucem downstairs to the coach, just then upon the point of starting. Paul Sweedlepipe was at the door with his arms tight folded and his eyes wide open, and looked on with absorbing interest, while the sick man was slowly moved into the vehicle. His bony hands and haggard face impressed Paul wonderfully, and he informed Mr. Bailey in confidence that he wouldn't have missed seeing him for a pound. Mr. Bailey, who was of a different constitution, remarked that he would have stayed away for five shillings. It was a troublesome matter to adjust Mrs. Gamp's luggage to her satisfaction, for every package belonging to the lady had the inconvenient property of requiring to be put in a boot by itself, and to have no other luggage near it on pain of actions at law for heavy damages against the proprietors of the couch. The umbrella with the circular patch was particularly hard to be got rid of, and several times thrust out its battered brass nozzle from improper crevices and chinks to the great terror of the other passengers. Indeed, in her intense anxiety to find a haven of refuge for this chattel, Mrs. Gamp so often moved it in the course of five minutes that it seemed not one umbrella but fifty. At length it was lost, or said to be, and for the next five minutes she was face to face with the coachman, go wherever he might, protesting that it should be made good, though she took the question to the House of Commons. At last her bundle and her pattens and her basket and everything else being disposed of, she took a friendly leave of Paul and Mr. Bailey, dropped a curtsey to John Westlock, and parted as from a cherished member of the sisterhood with Betsy Prigg. "'Wishing you lots of sickness, my darling creature,' Mrs. Gamp observed, "'and good places. It won't be long, I hope, before we works together off and on again, Betsy, and may our next meetin' be at a large family's, where they all takes it regular, one from another, turn and turn about, and has it business-like.' "'I don't care how soon it is,' said Mrs. Prigg, "'and how many weeks it lasts.' Mrs. Gamp, with a reply in a congenial spirit, was backing to the couch, when she came in contact with a lady and gentleman who were passing along the footway. "'Take care, take care here,' said the gentleman. "'Hello, my dear. Why, it's Mrs. Gamp!' "'Why, Mr. Mould!' exclaimed the nurse. "'And Mrs. Mould! Who would have thought we should ever have a meeting here, I'm sure?' "'Going out of town, Mrs. Gamp!' cried Mould. "'That's unusual, isn't it?' "'It is unusual, sir,' said Mrs. Gamp. "'But only for a day or two at most. "'The gent,' she whispered, as I spoke aloud. "'What, in the coach?' cried Mould. "'The one you thought of recommending? "'Very odd. "'My dear, this will interest you. "'The gentleman that Mrs. Gamp thought likely to suit us "'is in the coach, my love.' "'Mrs. Mould was greatly interested.' "'Here, my dear, you can stand upon the doorstep,' said Mould, "'and take a look at him. "'Ah, there he is. Where's my glass? "'Oh, all right, I've got it. "'Do you see him, my dear?' "'Quite plain,' said Mrs. Mould. "'Upon my life, you know, 
"'This is a very singular circumstance,' said Mould, quite delighted. "'This is the sort of thing, my dear, I wouldn't have missed on any account. It tickles one. It's interesting. It's almost a little play, you know. Ah, there he is, to be sure. Looks poorly, Mrs. M., don't he?' Mrs. Mould assented. "'He's coming our way, perhaps, after all,' said Mould. "'Who knows?' "'I feel as if I ought to show him some little attention, really. "'He don't seem a stranger to me. "'I'm very much inclined to move my hat, my dear.' "'He's looking hard this way,' said Mrs. Mould. "'Then I will,' cried Mould. "'How do you do, sir? "'I wish you good day.' "'Ah!' he bows to, very gentlemanly. "'Mrs. Gamp has the cards in her pocket, I have no doubt. "'This is very singular, my dear, and very pleasant.' I am not superstitious, but it really seems as if one was destined to pay him those little melancholy civilities which belong to our peculiar line of business. There can be no kind of objection to your kissing your hand to him, my dear. Mrs. Mould did so. Ah, said Mould, he's evidently gratified. Poor fellow. I am quite glad you did it, my love. Bye-bye, Mrs. Gamp, waving his hand. There he goes, there he goes. So he did, for the coach rolled off as the words were spoken. Mr. and Mrs. Mould, in high good humour, went their merry way. Mr. Bailey retired with Paul Sweetlepipe as soon as possible, but some little time elapsed before he could remove his friend from the ground, owing to the impression wrought upon the barber's nerves by Mrs. Prigg, whom he pronounced, in admiration of her beard, to be a woman of transcendent charms. When the light cloud of bustle hanging round the coach was thus dispersed, Nadget was seen in the darkest box of the bull coffee-room, looking wistfully up at the clock, as if the man who never appeared were a little behind his time. End of chapter 29